The Nightly News is one of the winners in our new COVID-19 uh, economy. The stats are in and, and the, uh, the ratings are in, and that is one of the most highly rated things that is available now. Now, it, it has the advantage of really being the only new content uh, being propagated. Uh, so that it has that in its favor. But people are, are, are even struggling to, uh, to, to tune into that. And people miss the things that have already been stripped away by this COVID-19 crisis. Um, so much so that last Tuesday night, um, maybe some of you, but over 850,000 Canadians tuned in and rewatched the, the Raptors uh, playoff game seven semifinal game against the 76ers with a now famous um, Kawhi Leonard uh, basket at the final buzzer. Now, of course, there's nothing inherently wrong with enjoying sports or getting tired of the news. But I find it a little bit interesting that in the midst of the most serious of times with people dying around us, many of us try and emotionally distance ourselves from the reality of the situation. We, we seek to distract ourselves and even to amuse ourselves in this time. Um, and again, please don't misunderstand me. There are times where this is helpful. But a lot of the times we, we put our energy and our focus really on things that are ultimately temporary. We crave the creature comforts in life, and we neglect the things that our souls truly hunger for. We neglect communion with God. It's easy, isn't it? We don't have to put much effort into neglect. That's the whole thing about neglect. And it's easier now in some ways, isn't it? Today, we would normally be gathering twice together, getting in our cars and driving to church and celebrating the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Communion. And maybe, maybe today, you're saying, well, you know, uh, who knows who iPhone 122 is anyway? Do I really need to gather together with the body of Christ here? Um, we, we have this tendency to think, well, I can just sort of check out because no one's really watching. Or more seriously, we can just stop putting effort into pursuing Christ in our own lives. And we start measuring our lives, not in relationship to how the, the Bible has laid out for us we are to live, but according to the surrounding culture. And that means we start adopting its fears and its purposes. We start beginning to care about things or begin to, to, to put other things in the place of God. And we start, start being much more fascinated with, with what's going on um, out there than what's necessarily going on in here and in our relationship with, with God. We begin to care about what's coming out on Netflix this month more than we care about serving and worshiping Jesus Christ. The Bible starts to feel more irrelevant to us when we can scoop up the latest viral piece of, of news. Maybe there's, a new, maybe there's a new vaccine or a new treatment or a new, you know, uh, turn your genes into a face mask thing that we need to see. That seems so, so more compelling. Or maybe just we want to just fall into binge watching and, 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 and just escaping our reality. After all, we might say to ourselves, where was God when I got laid off this week? Where was God when I got sick? How is God pursuing God helping me at all in this circumstance? And if we find ourselves in that situation, one of the things I think that is interesting is that we are not alone. 
This morning, we're going to look in the book of Isaiah, and we're going to see the Israelites, Israel, at a time much like uh, where we find ourselves, mentally at least. We are not carried off into exile and slavery physically in that sense, but we have been exiled in our homes in some sense, and we are unable to leave. And, and some of the things that, that we, some of the privileges um, that we enjoy, we no longer have. And when that kind of shift and that kind of change happens in our society, we can lose our moorings. And we can start to identify more with the, the new situation than we can with the ultimate situation. And the Israelites that, the, that Isaiah was uh, indeed preaching to and writing to um, were lost. They had lost themselves in the culture of Babylon. Uh, they had failed to listen to God's warnings against sin, and they had been therefore carried off in God's wrath to Babylon to be slaves. And the spiritual danger that Isaiah is seeking to address here, that God is actually seeking to address through Isaiah, is that they, they, they face losing their trust in God. They need rescuing. They need rescuing both practically, politically, and spiritually. They need a rescuer from their situation and a rescuer from their, their, their own themselves and their own idolatries. And this is exactly what God has promised them in the good news being proclaimed by Isaiah. After going through many years of warnings and pleadings, Israel has been carried off into exile. They haven't listened. But, and this is the encouraging thing about our passage this morning, Israel has not been forgotten by God. And this latter half of the book of uh, Isaiah, we're going to look at Isaiah, a little bit of Isaiah 42 and a little bit of Isaiah 43 today, but the latter half of the book of Isaiah brings out this marvelous good news that what God will do to restore his people. And it begins in chapter 40 when it says, comfort, comfort, my people. God promises comfort. And it's not a bowl of macaroni and cheese. Right? It's not a comfort food. It's, it's real lasting comfort. And the comfort promised by God is not just something that's, that, that's out there way in the future when we go to heaven. It's also about the present times. God, as the Lord of history, will reveal for Israel a political salvation from their immediate situation. In chapter 41, verse 2, he speaks of a man from the east who will come as a political deliverer. And later on in chapter 44, the sovereign God gets even more specific. And this is the thing that I think is so encouraging for us to see. As we look at, at the, the deliverance of Israel, we can see that God still has a holy people for himself. You see, we are also part of the blessing of Israel. If we have been grafted in, as, as the New Testament says, we enjoy the promises and the blessings and the comfort of God that he has laid out for his Old Testament people, Israel. And it, was, it, got, even, it, it got specific in uh, Isaiah 44 because we see King Cyrus named. Now, that's, that, that may not seem all that surprising to you, but King Cyrus wasn't even born. This was 150 years before he was born, he's named in Isaiah's prophecy. And, uh, uh, and 150 years later, he is the one that lets Israel return in exile. And, it, and, and the point of this, and the point of Isaiah's message is to show us God's sovereignty over the situation, that he will free the exiles and enable them to rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple so that they can worship and enjoy fellowship with him. 
And this is the kind of God that we see in Bible history, but it's also the kind of God that is at work here today in 2020. And so we're going to look together um, into the, the past, into the history of the scriptures, into the Old Testament today, to understand and see how this God works both for them and for us. Because God's great spiritual rescue plan has already begun and is well underway. It began with a servant. And he describes this at the beginning of Isaiah 42. So I'm going to read a little passage here from Isaiah 42, verse 1 to 4. He says, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. And this is the promise of a servant. But this promise of a servant is marvelously good news because it is something that speaks of God's deliverance and his provision for his people. But let me ask you this morning, do you, do you even believe the news anymore? You see, sometimes even when we hear the word of God, even when we hear these things, there's something that is a barrier to us, and that is our cynicism. And our cynicism can be a barrier to our accepting even the best of news. And the reality is that the gospel, the message of the gospel, the message of the Bible is only wonderful if you're enabled to hear it. But if this morning you're coming to this and your, your focus is, is on these things, uh, then you can actually not hear what the Word of God is saying to you. But my encouragement to you is that God is patient, that even in our cynicism, even in our weakness, he ministers to us. And we're going to see that this morning from our passage here. God is patient with Israel. And even before uh, them, he addresses them in their cynicism and their lostness. He speaks to them in the middle of their idolatrous living and their temptations to live out their lives in fear, which is where many of us find ourselves this morning. So the key gospel verse in our passage is found in Isaiah 43, verse 11. It says, I, I am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. He is our Savior. And this is the case that God lays out for them and ultimately lays out for us, that God is our Savior and our hope in this time of crisis and difficulty. So we're going to look this morning at two sections here. Um, first, the, the latter half of uh, Psalm 40, uh, sorry, um, Isaiah 42, verse 18 to 25, and then the beginning half of Isaiah 43, uh, verses 1 to 7. We're going to look and see the need for a Savior and the God who saves. But before we do that, let's hear God's word, and let's pray, and then let's unpack it together. So Beginning at Psalm, uh, at Isaiah, sorry, 42, uh, verse 18. Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness' sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted, 
They are all full, all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say, rejoice, restore, sorry. Who among you will give ear to this, will attend and listen for the time to come? Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderer? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned, in whose ways they would not walk, and whose laws they would not obey? So he poured on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he didn't take it to heart. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am Yahweh. I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes. And I am honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I form and made. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this word, which contains the promises, Lord, of a faithful God. We pray, O oh Lord, that your faithfulness and your love and your grace might be on display as we open up your word here now. Lord, that you would work with this imperfect servant and his, uh, his, his weaknesses, Lord, to preach the truth of your gospel and to work in hearts and minds, Lord, to convince and convert, to work by your Holy Spirit, Lord, to change. Lord, nothing that I say, Lord, ultimately can change the world. Only your Spirit can speak to us. So, Lord, I pray, would you indeed work through the weakness of this man to accomplish your purposes, to change hearts and minds for the gospel and the glory of Jesus Christ. Bless us now, Lord, as we examine this together. Encourage us, strengthen us, rebuke us, change us. Make us more into the image of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. So as we said, we're going to divide the texts. Really, um, we're, we're going to start in, in Isaiah 42, and we're going to end in Isaiah 43. We're going to look, first of all, at the need for a Savior. In Isaiah 42, 18 to 25. And then secondly, the God who saves. Isaiah 43, 1 to 7. But the first thing that we need to understand here, as we come to perhaps one of the most beautiful passages in um, the Old Testament, this, this thing, maybe you, you're not aware before today that it was Isaiah 43, but many of you have heard about, heard those wonderfully encouraging words, fear not, for I have redeemed you, and you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers they are not overwhelm you, walk through fire, and you will not be burned. These are things that are familiar to us if we have some familiarity with, with the scriptures. But sometimes we can sort of lift those passages of comfort out of the scriptures and not see the, the proper context in which they came. And thereby we, 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 we don't uh, appreciate 
the depth and, and the power of them in their context. So we're going to look at a little bit of the context. And the context here in Isaiah 42 is that there is a need for a savior. Israel has been carried off into slavery. They're in exile. And uh, as we look at this, th this section, there are some things that we need to sort of clear up. There are some potential areas for confusion. Isaiah here has just been talking about leading the blind nations out of the darkness into the light of God. We see that in, in chapter 42, verse 16 and 17. But when it talks about the, the, the deaf in verse 18, it says, Hear you deaf, and look you blind, that you may see. You might ask yourself, well, who do we expect the deaf and the blind to be here? You say, well, who's blind to God's goodness? You say, well, that's easy. It's, it's, it's not Israel. Israel's the chosen people. They know all that. It's the idolatrous nations around them. Um, and if that's your thought, I'm sorry to say, you're wrong. We're wrong. It says, who is blind but my servant? But my servant. What is going on here? I just read at the, a little bit earlier from Psalm 42, verse 1 to 4, and we talked about the servant of the Lord bringing salvation to the nations. But now we hear that God's servant, the Lord's servant, is blind and deaf. What's going on? God's messenger can't even hear God's message himself. In verses 1 to 4, the servant of the Lord brings perfection to the world. In verses 18 to 25, the servant fails. How do we make sense of this? What's going on here? It can be tough to follow, but let's look closely together. There's a clue here in verse uh, 24. Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers. Okay. What is he talking about here? Well, the nation of Israel was called the servant of the Lord back in Isaiah 41 verse 8. But they were blind to his purpose and deaf to God's word. They failed in their mission to glorify God. So God sends the ideal servant in Christ Jesus. So verses 1 to 4 of Isaiah 42 are looking forward to Jesus Christ. And verses 18 to 25 of Isaiah 42 are looking back at Israel, who is as blind as the pagan nations. Okay, so once we understand who the servant is, and you see here in verses 18 to 25, the servant is Israel, it helps us to understand the failure better. What did Israel fail to see? Well, verse 21 tells us here. It says, the Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake, to magnify his law and make it glorious, but this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say restore. Israel's actual mission as a nation, when they were commissioned as God's people, it wasn't because they were genetically superior. It was not because of anything else. In fact, it was because they were little and small. That's what the Lord says. It says, you have no consequence. And he, he made, he formed them for himself. And he did that. And the, the, the whole purpose was to be an example to the other nations, to make God's law attractive and glorious. How? Well, by showing life under God's rule, the beauty of life under God's rule. And the reality is that Israel failed to do this. Instead of being set apart for God and living for God and, and rejoicing in him and and, and exuding his grace and his love, they became like the other nations. And they adopted all of the practices of the peoples around them. And so God brought judgment upon them. 
and they became a deaf and a blind witness. Sometimes, brothers and sisters who are Christians this morning, sometimes this is our situation, isn't it? Because the church carries on Israel's mission. We are called to be a, to, to be a light and a lamp. We, Jesus calls not only himself the light of the world, but he also calls the church the light of the world. You are the light of the world. We are called to be examples of God's grace and his mercy. And this is our calling, particularly in times like these. One of the things that makes the gospel such an attractive truth is that it transforms our lives. And it means that we should be acting in ways that we don't see necessarily around us. When we are walking with God, people ought to see it and notice it. They see and are attracted to the compassion that we show, to the justice and the grace that flows. If we are walking with God, that is the sort of thing that, that flows out of our lives. That is the fruit of the Spirit, the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the goodness, the gentleness, the self-control. All of those things come not because we're naturally those things, but because God has worked supernaturally by his spirit in us. Let me ask you this morning, is that something that people see in you, in me? Do they see Christ in the way that you manage yourself? Maybe your coworkers, I know those of you who are still going to work, are anxious and afraid. What do your coworkers observe or your children observe in you as you face Similar pressures and uncertainties. How do you respond in these situations? Do you explode in uncontrolled anger when things don't go right? Do you live in constant fear and anxiety? The reality is we tend to be our own worst enemies. And when it comes to sharing the gospel at this time, we torpedo our own witness. Maybe some of you families are feeling this particularly as you all are together now under one roof and you're not going anywhere. Dads and moms are feeling the pressures and the strains. We know what we should do, but we don't do it. But here's where God's word provides encouragement. God's word provides the encouragement. It's not just our obedience that matters. It does. Our obedience does matter. We're called not to be afraid. We're called not to, not, not to show forth sin. And we're to show forth the grace and the mercy and the love, the joy, the peace, patience, kindness, goodness, all of that. We're called to do that. Well, what is encouraging is that sometimes the most powerful way that we can witness in these situations is how we cope with our disobedience. Because as we're together, we are going to have conflict. As we're together, we're going to have all kinds of problems emerge, right? Some of the things that maybe we haven't talked about, now we're talking about and and we're ripping off band-aids, and there's all there, there, there's conflict that erupts. And the question is, how do we deal with that conflict? How do we deal when when we respond not faithfully, when we respond in anger or or stress to a situation? How do we deal with our disobedience? And sometimes the most powerful way that we can show forth the the, the gospel is in how we address our disobedience. Some of the most powerful ways that parents can witness to their children is in our own repentance. Because our children know us. They know our sins. They know our failures better than anybody else. But do they know how we deal with sin? Do they know how we repent of sin? That's, that's the difference that the gospel makes. When we're willing to confess to our own son or daughter or to our coworker 
that we did something wrong, that we lost our temper, or that we weren't patient when we should have been, or we were unkind, that we disobeyed and broke God's law, and that we need to ask forgiveness from God and also from them. You see, that is what makes the gospel of grace so beautiful. As we live lives that are humble in submission to God and his law, as we confess our sins and we seek him in repentance and faith, this is how we bear witness and testimony to the grace of Jesus Christ in our situation. When our family and our friends see the peace of God win out over anxiety, when the love, the chesed of God wins out over anger and irritation and patience is shown, when the lordship of his life directs our thoughts and our behaviors, that's when people say, oh, yes, there's something real here. There is something very concrete. But Israel exists here in the Old Testament as a warning to us because they didn't do this. Instead of seeking forgiveness, they rejected God as king, and they tried to be just like the nations around them. They cried out for, and they got a succession of men to be their kings. And eventually, these men just led them further and further and further away from God until they found themselves ultimately under God's judgment, and God brought another nation in to, to take them into exile and captivity. This is summarized uh, in verse 24. This is what he's saying. Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunder? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned, in whose ways they would not walk, and in whose law they would not obey? Here it is, stated so plain and obvious. The sovereignty of God. God has sovereignly worked to bring Israel into exile. God is the one who brought them into exile. Right? Their sin... It's a consequence for their sin. It's not random. There is a reason why they're in exile. But ultimately, it is God who put them there. And that's a really important thing for us to recognize and to see. Because this is a different perspective on life. It's a different perspective on this COVID-19 crisis, isn't it? And it means that just because you're a Christian identified with Christ, it doesn't mean that your life is going to be full of rainbows and unicorns. Right? Sometimes there will be hardship. And it's hard to know. It's hard to know and it's hard to accept that ultimately God is the one that is bringing it on us. That God is sovereign in this situation. This is what it means for us to understand our current circumstances. COVID-19 is a result of the fall into sin. It's part of the curse. Part of the death that was introduced into the world because of our sin. The Bible says very clearly that the wages of sin is death. And frankly, we shouldn't be surprised by that. In fact, we should be surprised really by the mercy of God that anyone survives at all. We shouldn't be surprised also because the Bible also tells us that all of us are sinners. All of us, including me, have fallen short of the glory of God. None of us deserve God's grace. None of us deserve his mercy. There is no one righteous, as Romans says. No, not one. Not the one preaching, not the one hearing. But we're not very good at paying attention, are we? Even when we observe the discipline of God and the effects of the curse and the fall, which warn us of his wrath, even when we see the news like we see it every, every night, 
We don't necessarily feel it and take it to heart. A few weeks ago, I was talking about Luke 13. That's what Jesus was trying to do. He's saying, you know, you look at these, these, these terrible things that are going on here, the Tower of Siloam falling or the murder that's going on over here. And, 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 and yes, those are terrible things, but the, the real focus has to be, are you any better? Do you deserve any better? He says, repent, lest you likewise perish. These signs of the times are meant to communicate something to us. They're meant to communicate the urgency of reconciling with our God and knowing him. But we're not really good at paying attention. The picture in verse 25 in our passage, I think, is so evocative. Uh, 42, chapter 42, verse 25. So he poured on him the heat of his anger and the might of his battle. It set him on fire all around. But he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. The picture here in verse 25 is that we are literally under the fire of God's wrath, and yet we don't seem to get it. Instead, we think God is somehow unfeeling and unkind. But here's the truth. He's not the problem. God's not the problem. The problem is that our lives bear little in relation to his purpose for us. Our purpose for us, and the reason why we've been created, the meaning of life is this, to glorify God and to enjoy him. Why? Because he is God. He made us. He's not our peer. He's our God. He's so far above us. He's the God who made us, and we're accountable to him. We owe our lives to him. Look at what it says in chapter 43, verse 7. It says, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created, why? For my glory, whom I formed and made. Why are we formed and made? For his glory. To worship and to enjoy and to love and to care, to delight in fellowship with him. That is our purpose, but instead of embracing our purpose, we ignore or reject him. And then we get upset at him when he doesn't give us what we want. This is why Judah, this is why Israel went into national exile. That's why, honestly, churches today go into institutional exile, where, the, where this gospel, which confronts us with the bad news of our sin, is in short supply. If we don't warn people of the reason why they need a Savior, why would they ever accept Jesus Christ as their Savior? If they don't know that they're a sinner, then how are they possibly to turn to Jesus Christ as their Savior? We just pat people on the back and say, oh, that's well done. No, that's good. That's good. You're trying your best, right? No, that's not what the scriptures say. It's not, it's not our best efforts. In fact, Isaiah goes on in chapter 64 to say our best deeds are like filthy rags. They won't save you. If you're depending on the money that you're giving to the Red Cross or the church or uh, the, the good deeds that you're going to and, and handing out food or, or doing whatever it is that, that, that is that is that you think is earning your righteousness, it's not. We're not saved by our works. Ephesians 2 is very clear. It says, for it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this not from yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. The gospel, the good news is that we're worse than we think that we are. But the, 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 the glorious news is that God's grace is greater than our, than our sin, that his, his power is more complete and full and awesome than what we can imagine. So the text here in Isaiah 42 shows us how foolish we can be. 
in these situations, even when there are plenty of warnings around us. I, I really do think this, this verse 25 is very evocative. Can you imagine being on fire and not caring? I don't know about you. I once had my sleeve catch fire when I was cooking. But could you imagine your, your, your sleeve catches flames and it starts to, to grow and you sort of notice it and you're like, hmm, I wonder what's, what that tiger thing is on Netflix as your, as your, as your, as your shirt just erupts in flames. Like, it, it's, it's ridiculous, right? You'd be like, hey, drop and roll, right? If, if, you got, if you got fire, you got to drop and roll. You got to take whatever emergency measures are necessary to address the fire that's going to consume you. But the picture of unbelief, the picture of not looking to God is captured here. In verse 25, he poured on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle, set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it. How do you take the word of God to heart? You believe it. You act upon it. We don't read the word of God for our own intellectual stimulation. Yes. The Word of God is actually very logical and very interesting and historical and all of those kinds of things. But it's also meant to be practical. It's meant to be listened and obeyed. It's meant to be the driving force, the moral, ethical by which we judge our society. We're seeing our society descend into an ethical chaos on the medical level. Who lives, who dies? How do we know that? Where do we derive that? How is that? How, would, how, do we, how do we think those things through? Well, we have the word of God, which puts a premium on human life. It's not up to a doctor to determine your life and your death. No, life is precious. But as a society, we've rejected this. We've viewed new life, babies, as inconveniences that we kill. Or older people not being able to contribute to society in the same way as useless. We start to see this, this attitude now where, where indeed they're moving people uh, and, and, and that they are downplaying uh, the, 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 the safety of older people in, in Italy and some of the, the clinics that are going on there. They're, they're putting COVID patients in nursing homes. Um, and, and we don't have time to go into all of the implications of all that, but there's, there, there's, there's a mentality in our society that is informed by, uh, by, by our ethics. And we need to understand that our ethics need to proceed from somewhere. We need to have an understanding of how to live and to uh, understand our society. And the word of God is our lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And we ignore it at our peril. We must seek to understand. We must not be like this unfeeling one here. We may know this intellectually. A lot of us may be uh, uh, like this picture sometimes, where we know, but we are unfeeling, and, un and, and we don't take the Word of God to heart. Instead of dropping and rolling and running when we're on fire, and looking to the living water that's provided for us in Christ Jesus, we either blame God for our relationship, or we just ignore him altogether. We look to dumb things to satisfy our deepest longings, like our Netflix queue to deal with the issues in our hearts. You see, idols aren't just made of stone and wood. They're also made out of pixels. 
It's not just the Israelites that were foolish in the pursuit of them. We often do the same thing. But hopefully you're tracking with me this morning. Hopefully you're responding to this word and seeing your need, like Israel's, of a Savior. Because as you examine your activities in this last week and what you spent your time and how you lived out your life, I don't think any of us could say, well, that was a good week. I didn't have anything. I didn't sin in any way this week. And if you do have that perspective, come talk to me and we'll talk about it. Right? Hopefully you're responding to this word and you're seeing your need like Israel's of a Savior. That's the, that's the point here in Psalm, in Isaiah 42. We see our need for a Savior. And gloriously, we'll see next, secondly, the God who saves. Isaiah 43, verse 1 to 7. And it begins in a wonderful way. Begins with this glorious conjunction. But, but now, says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. You are mine. This is one of those beautiful adversatives where we have this horrible statement of the unfeelingness of, of, of Israel. And you notice there's not a change in Israel. The, the, real, the real change that happens is because of God. God intervenes in this situation. But now, thus says the Lord, uh, Israel woke up. No, he who created you, O Jacob, he who fear, formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed The action is all of God's to save. Judah has sinned and is deaf and dumb and blind as the idols that they serve. But God is a gracious God who intervenes and saves them. Do you see how abruptly Isaiah here transitions from our problem to God's remedy? The Jacob and Israel here in verse 1 are just as blind and deaf as the Jacob and Israel in Isaiah in, in chapter 42 and verse 18 and 19. And, and the signal, the but now here, is not that they've suddenly awoken to the situation. It is that God has declared that he's going to intervene. It declares the grace of God. Right? As it says in the New Testament, Christ Jesus died for us while we were yet sinners. It's not all of a sudden it's like, Oh, I'm going to clean up my act, and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to be better now. Now that I see all this death around me, I'm going to work harder. And, and, and God's like, oh, Chris, you're doing a great job. I'm going to save you now. You know? No. No. Our God is more gracious and kind than that. Because even if I don't understand what's going on necessarily, God works in the situation to bring about salvation. The reason for the but now is not our repentance, but God himself. Verse 3 says, for I am, I am Yahweh, I am the Lord, your God, I am who I am, I am your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. And God's grace here is revealed wonderfully in the way in which he uh, conveys this salvation to us in this series of words. First, he says, fear not, for I have redeemed you. And this language is all over the place in Isaiah. If you, if you get a chance to read through the book of Isaiah in, in the latter half, it's wonderful to read this redemption language. He has provided for us. And the sense here of redemption is this kinsman and redeemer, like Boaz was to Ruth in the Old Testament. He has provided for us. He's protected us. He's delivered us. Nothing 
can snatch him, snatch us from his hands. And that's something that's important for us to recognize. He's our deliverer, and he holds on to us. We might lose each other. That's one of the realities of things. But we will never lose God because his grip is upon us. It's not our grip on him. It's his grip on us. This is the picture of our God. He is our Savior. He redeems us, but he also purchases us. He says, fear not, for I redeem you. I have called thee by name. <clears throat> when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. He says, I have purchased you. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba, in exchange for you. God has delivered Israel by the payment of a price. He has purchased God's servant, has been purchased. He has paid the ransom, the ransom price. He's even willing, and this is interesting here, to let other nations become substitutes for judgment so that his people might go free, right? For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of your Israel. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba, in exchange for you. That's an amazing picture, isn't it? God's commitment to his Holy One, to the, the one that he has made holy in his grace and according to his wisdom, is such that he's willing to let others go in our place. Do you truly know that kind of love? Do you truly know this God? John Calvin is famous for saying, the Lord takes such care of all believers that he values them more highly than the rest of the world. Have you seen that before? It's interesting. It's true. And we know it's true. We see at various times in Old Testament Israel where uh, others are sacrificed, other nations, in fact, uh, stand in the way of Assyria uh, in, 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 in kings when Hezekiah is, is king. Other nations are swallowed up, and Israel is preserved by God. We see Israel, God at work in all of these things. And we see, see that this, this, this principle of a substitute being provided for those who would suffer under God's wrath. And that's all over the Old Testament. One of the most famous passages is, of course, when Abraham takes his son Isaac up Mount Moriah and offers him. Uh, and, and God stays his hand and provides a ram as a substitute. But the reality is that this is just a picture of God's work entirely in our lives, because God has provided a greater substitute than Cush or Seba or a ram. He has provided the great substitute for us in Jesus Christ. God gave us his one and only son. This morning is the first Sunday in the month, and here in Toronto, that's when we normally celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's when we normally have communion, and we normally would see over on a table to the side here the, the bread and the wine, and we would consume them. They were tangible reminders of that substitute. All we can do for now is look forward to when we will enjoy them. Lord willing, when all of this crisis ends, we'll be able to gather again and again see and taste those tangible reminders of his grace. But we can hear the word of God as a means of grace to us and remind us of these things and taste and see that God is good. You see, if you're questioning whether or not God is good and fair in this situation, we need to remember what God did to rescue us. Because God did provide for us a Savior. He has given us Jesus Christ, and he has given us him of his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but would have eternal life. 
Notice what he says here in verses 1 and 2 of Psalm, uh, of, I want to say Psalm 43. It feels like I'm preaching a psalm, but I'm not. Um, Isaiah 43 says, Do not fear, for I will be with you. One of, the fa- one of my favorite little choruses that I uh, used to sing with the youth group here at Covenant many years ago and uh, when I was younger was, uh, was based on this passage. And it has this whole chorus. It's just, do not fear, for I will be with you. And then he goes on, he calls me by name. And, and, it, and it's just a beautiful thing. And, and sometimes when I'm struggling, I will still have that song go through my, my mind. Do not fear. And it's a glorious reminder of God's grace. He is, we don't need to fear because he's preserving us. As Psalm 46 puts us, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains have moved into the heart of the sea. But it's interesting here, isn't it? Because when we see here, it says, fear not, for I have redeemed you. You might think, well, okay, we're not going to experience anything bad. But the reality is that's not what God is talking about here, right? It says, not if you pass through the waters, I will be with you. He says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. You see, God will not be ignored. If we are ignoring him in our lives, God will put us through waters and rivers and fires and flames. But he still says, fear not. Why? Well, I think it's because we feel deeply insecure with God and fearful, honestly, that he will deal with us as we deserve. I wonder if you've had that thought. I wonder if you thought, well, maybe I'll get COVID because I deserve it. Maybe that's the way you're feeling this morning. Maybe you're feeling I'm under God's judgment here. And because of our sin, we can say, first of all, that's actually true. We are under God's judgment. Everyone is under God's judgment for our sin. We're under the wrath of God. But that's not the whole story, is it? Because if you know God, then verse 3 is the key. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of God, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange. I am your God. I am Yahweh, your God. What does that mean? We belong to him. It means that we are his. Even more deeply, though, than we belonging to him, he belongs to us. He belongs to us. A Savior has given himself for us, to us. And he's fulfilling his promises to us, not because of what we've done, not because of what we deserve, but because we belong to him. We are redeemed by his blood. We are purchased by his ransom. And that's an amazing statement of God's grace in this situation. God will preserve us because we are his, and he is ours. He says this even more beautifully in verse 4. This progressively gets more encouraging. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men any return for you, people in exchange for your life. Now, did you notice what was sandwiched in there? Right? It says, and I love you. And I love you. This is the grace of God. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if he has caught a hold of your your heart and you've confessed 
your sins before him, and he is, he is, he's given you the grace of salvation, he loves you. He loves us. He's given himself to us. This is why God is so actively involved in our lives. He loves us. We're precious to him. So precious that he doesn't allow us to, to experience affliction alone. He gives himself to us. This is a God who made us and who is incredible and, and wonderful and beyond our, our thought or our expression. He's so far above us, but he's a God who is both transcendent above us and imminent right there in front of us. A God who is imminent, and his imminence is reflected in the person of Jesus Christ in the incarnation. God came down. He took on flesh and entered into the misery and the suffering of life here on earth. He's personal. He wrote himself into history to gather us from the four corners of the earth. This is what he says. He says in verse 6, I will give, say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth. Male and female created in his image, brought together. It's a universal statement of God bringing his people out from the nations and saving them. And how does he do this? In the cross of Jesus Christ. God proves his love to us. He lays down his life. He sends his only begotten son. There is no greater love. There is no greater sacrifice than that. You see, it's one thing to say that you love them. But love isn't predominantly a feeling. It's an action. Love is bearing with your child's immaturity, even with their rejection when you lay down the law. Loving them anyways and always. And, it, and that kind of love is not one without sacrifice. That, that, that kind of love is not one without effort or pain. Right? We bear with one another in that. And God is, in that sense, a loving parent. And we see why God loves us here. And it's a glorious statement. Verse 7, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. God loves us. Why? To the praise of his glorious grace. That's what Ephesians 1 speaks about. Our destiny is to be a living advertisement of how God is good to the people who deserve the opposite. The reality is not, why doesn't God, reality is to the answer to the question, why doesn't God save everyone, is, not, is actually to, to rephrase the question and to say, why does God save anyone? Because the reality is that we've all rejected him. We've all sinned and gone our own way. But the mercy of God is that he will save, that he will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. And our destiny, if we have come to know that grace and that mercy, is to demonstrate the love of God around us. We don't think of God, we ought not to think of God as playing a supporting role in a movie that is all about you and me being the big actors. Oftentimes, that's how we live our lives, right? We are the main character. We are the protagonist in the situation. But that's not a true view of eternity in perspective. God is the protagonist. We are, at best, the supporting actors, the, 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 the background scenery. And his purpose is to bring the glory of his salvation into our experience. Despite what he deserves, he is to be admired and delighted in. 
because he has shown that kind of grace to us. We are called to be trophies of his grace. And it's never about us. It's ultimately about him. He's our maker and our God. He is also our Savior, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. He loves us and he delights in us. So don't lose perspective on this grand story. As we watch entertainment, as we watch the news, what is it that actually encourages us most? I know a lot of newscasts today are trying to put good news segments in. What is it that we enjoy? My, my family and I watched a, a, a clip this week of, uh, of an actor just uh, collecting good news and called it, I think, the Good News Network or something like that, and it was propagating. And as I was watching that, I was wondering, I was thinking, what is it that really encourages us when we are in difficulty? What is it that we identify with in movies that, you know, that we were carried along and, and we can have emotional experiences as we watch these things? What is it that thrills us the most? We see, when we see the victory of love, when we see a, a cancer patient returning home and her whole neighborhood out there cheering her on as she goes back to her home, when, when, when we see the promise of hope, when we see the joy of redemption, when we hear of, of, of God being at work in, in various different ways. You see these themes over and over. And in, in the good news of, um, uh, that we see on little good news segments that the newscasts are putting on there, we see a little reflection of these things. But all of these things and all the things that give us hope, all the things that, that really encourage us, I just want to point out to you this morning, they're really just a subset of the great story that God has written. You see these themes of hope and love and salvation and redemption over and over, but they're just a pale reflection of what is really true. Because these themes are written right here. Every good story is a subset of the greatest story, the history of our God bringing redemption into our world. If you're a child of his this morning, he loves you. And he has given you everything in Christ Jesus. And he will gather us all into eternal glory, whether that's now or a future. God's promises are sure. But maybe this morning you aren't a child of God. And you're living in fear. You don't know what is to come. Let me encourage you. This word is for you. The Bible says, he that has ears to hear, let him hear. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that he came into the world to save sinners. But if we do not acknowledge our sin, if we do not cry out to him, we cannot be saved. God works in us to convict and to convert us. So if you feel the weight and the burden of your sin, don't just look at it like your, your arm is on fire and just ignore it and then think about something else. Address it. Cry out to God. Ask him for grace and forgiveness. And he has promised that he will not turn anyone away that truly comes to him. That means he wants all of us, not just a part of us, not just a little bit of us on Sundays. He wants our whole lives. He wants all of us. But the benefit that we gain is much greater than anything that we might give up. There, there, there's, no, there's no foolishness in giving up that which you cannot take with you, all right? I forget the exact quote, but I remember Jim Elliott saying something. He is no fool who, uh, who gives up 
what he cannot take in order to obtain that which he cannot have. That's something along those lines. But the, the whole idea is, why do we hold on to the things of this world? Why do we, we put our, our comfort and our hope in things that will spoil, perish, and fade? Why not put our hope in the eternal God who is working all things out and is in sovereign control of these things and indeed is, is crying out to us, shouting to us in our pain of our need to, to, to look to him and to turn to him and to trust in him because he is a gracious God. It's, it, it, he is a gracious God that has shown his grace by giving us the cross of Jesus Christ. So our hope and our encouragement needs to be found in one place tonight, this morning, whatever we are. That's to be found in Christ Jesus alone. In Christ alone, our hope is found. He is our light, our strength, and our song. Do you know that hope in Jesus Christ? You can. Cry out to him. Ask him. And if you're a Christian, turn back to him. Look back into the scriptures. Nourish, feed yourselves on these things. You'll be much more healthy, and you'll be much more uh, at peace with God and with others. May God use his word and implant it deep in our hearts, and may it show forth in our joy. May you know the love and the joy of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, which is helpful to us, Lord. It helps us to understand that you are sovereign over these things. And that we are sinners, Lord, that have fallen so far short. We are like Israel, Lord, that are on fire, but ignore it. Do not understand. Lord, your word tells us the truth. It, it helps us to understand our true situation. Lord, I pray that we would not just have an intellectual understanding of that this morning, but that we would respond in faith and repentance. Help us, Lord. Help us to cry out to you. Grant us the faith to believe and to trust your word, and the repentance to turn away from whatever idols we have uh, focused our attention and our hearts upon, and turn ourselves to, to the living and true worship of the true God. Would you bless us, Lord? Would you work through this electronic means by your spirit in our hearts? Encourage us, strengthen us, bless us in Jesus' name. Amen.